Marshall and Sager here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Uh, Tesla's value is, is totally out of control and completely irrational. Listen, anyone who believes this market is rational, you want to send me hate mail? Go ahead. It's totally irrational. It's due to the, the factors that, that um, we're, we're living in right now where people have no idea where to put their money. So they're putting it into the stock market. It doesn't make any sense. Maybe we'll catch up to those valuations if our economy starts to grow, but I, I do not see it. And I'm not saying Tesla's not a great company. I'm just saying it's overvalued. This week, we have an awesome episode with Alex Kantrovitz of the Big Technology Podcast and the Big Technology Substack. Alex was a senior technology reporter at BuzzFeed before he released a book you should all check out, Always Day One, How the Tech Titans Plan to Stay on Top Forever. This was a great show for us to help end the year with. If you've noticed, the past several months, we focused on the power of the tech industry and the way that all the events during the COVID-19 pandemic have really furthered that power. So definitely go back and take a listen to our Scott Galloway episode if you haven't done that yet. But the way we ended up approaching this episode, we, we went through every single major theme of the industry moving forward, from the big IPOs of Airbnb to Amazon's dominance during the pandemic to China and TikTok to the FTC lawsuit of Instagram. So we covered a lot of things. I really enjoyed speaking with Alex because what he did is that he pushed back and he pointed out areas that we just frankly had never thought of. One of my favorite points that he made, he's like, yeah, look, like maybe you break up Google, but that actually might empower Apple. And I was like, oh, wow, like I never thought about that before. What he's really getting at is there are second, third, fourth order effects to government policy. I'm not arguing against government policy, but we got to go in a very clear eyed with exactly the type of society that we want on the other end, because otherwise these things just become dumb like culture war signifiers and nothing actually happens. If you want to really make sure that working people come out better after antitrust with concerns about technology, what exactly are we concerned about? Data privacy, anti-competitive behavior, all kinds of you know, labor relations, those types of things. These are exactly the types of discussions and more that you need to have. So before we get into the show, we have our sections. Huge reminder, be sure to subscribe to our new Substack therealignment.substack.com. There is a link in the show notes. And also, when you go to that Substack, check out our bookshop.org shop, where we've listed out every single book that we've had on the show the past year. If you purchase the book at Bookshop, you not only support a local bookseller instead of Amazon in this case, but you also get 10% commission for the show. It really helps out. And uh, as promised, I revealed my top 10 categories of books. I couldn't pick 10 books. I'm sorry, guys. I, I, I tried and I tried and I tried, but I ended up just doing my top 10 categories. It's got everything on there from sports to explorers to tech books to politics, everything you could possibly want. So check that out, therealignment.substack.com. And if you want to buy any of them, the bookshop.org link is in that post. So do us a favor. It really helps people find the show. And if you're searching for books as gifts or you just want to check something out and you have some downtime, I highly recommend those reads. 
And a reminder, my book list with categories to match Saga will be coming out this Friday, so definitely subscribe. Now on to our Q&A section. A reminder, if you give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, take a screenshot of that and email us at realignmentpod at gmo.com or leave a question in the actual five-star review itself. We will answer your question on air. So today's is a very straightforward one considering the show's theme of what do you all think of tech censorship? This is from Richard from Florida. It's a great question, Richard, something that you're going to hear a little bit about in our podcast today. I talk a little bit about liberal bias within companies, but the most frustrating thing that Marshall and I see is that the conversation just stops there. Um, the conversation shouldn't stop at censorship. If you want to understand how exactly somebody gets censored online, you got to understand this company's business model, their internal culture. What are the board of directors saying? What internal and external pressures are they facing within Silicon Valley? How does it affect their stock price? What I'm getting at is that there are a million different factors contributing both economically, socially, and more to the ultimate end experience that we get when somebody that we like is censored or speech that we like is taken off and that we got to understand how these companies operate at the most holistic level if we actually want to do anything about it. And the perfect example of what happens when you don't understand the nuances of the issues we're talking about today, so the advertising, the competition, the nature of what antitrust actually is, is you end up not understanding the actual issues in front of you. So for example, I was a part of a post-election tech policy conversation as part of my day job at the Lincoln Network. And a person came on, he's on the right, he is very, very anti-censorship, liberal companies are biased, all the typical things you'd hear from someone. He then went on to say, though, what the right needs to do is break up Twitter because it's a monopoly. Anyone who knows anything about tech policy, and not even tech policy, but just business and the things we're talking about today will tell you Twitter is not a monopoly. There's absolutely right. no debate about Twitter being a monopoly. Twitter underperforms when it comes to advertising. Part of the controversy of Jack Dorsey early in the year was the notion that people thought it could actually perform better in the stock market. So if you're going to talk about censorship, understand that a way to deal with it isn't going to be through trying to break up Twitter, a company which is an also ram when it comes to advertising. So it's just really important that you pay attention to these broader topics that Alex is really great at talking about. Yeah, and when you don't know the very basics, then you're going to come up with bad policy. For example, there probably isn't an anti-competition solution to what's happening at Twitter. That probably is going to have to be overt government regulation, FCC, which we've discussed here on the show. There's a lot of different avenues. But saying we got to break up Twitter, that's not going to fix anything. Twitter, I mean, look, it's a great company, and like obviously like people use it all the time, blah, blah, blah. But it's a place for elite discourse and for people to like watch that elite discourse happen. That's not really a monopolistic product. Facebook, on the other hand, I think you may be able to argue that that's a monopoly, although Alex actually pushes back on that a little bit in the episode. But regardless, if you're worried about Facebook, that's an avenue that you can realistically explore there. Same thing with Google, same thing with Apple, same thing with Amazon. So you gotta understand the very basics of these companies and the environment that they're each in, because they're all very different. Um, before we can start to get to, what do we do about the huge impact that they're having on our lives? Well said. Last but not least, huge shout out to Lincoln Network for hosting and sponsoring the podcast. We really appreciate it. On to the episode.
Alex Kantaritz, welcome to The Realignment. Thank you. It's great to be here. And I'm excited to talk about uh, what I know are your two favorite subjects, third-party candidates and sports. <laughs> I'll be like, all right, dude, just get out of here. Yeah, in all seriousness, it's, it's great to be here. Um, you guys have built an amazing show and uh, your listeners are loyal and they love it. And, and uh, I just have to say I admire it. I was calling a friend to talk about you know what I should talk about with you guys on the way, uh-huh. on the way over here, and uh, and he's like, I'm watching right now. And he's watching your <laughs> Hill Show saga. Oh, so, really? <laughs> That's uh, funny. So I admire it, and and it's a real great opportunity to be here. And I want to say thank you for having me on. Sweet man, absolutely. It's good to see you. So speaking of poorly done segues, back in April, actually came across you way before you launched your Substack and your podcast because you released your book, Always Day One, How the Tech Titans Plan to Stay on Top Forever. Great book, however, horrific timing. I'm, you've talked about it in one of your podcasts itself too. You, you released this book literally a month into the pandemic. So the first question is, what were you trying to say in the book, aside from the obviousness in the title, but also it's been six, seven, eight months. What would you have added or changed based on all that? Thanks. Uh, so yeah, the book is always day one, and it looks at the work cultures and tech- internal technology of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft. And so what I was trying to say in the book is, you know, I'm here in Silicon Valley as a reporter covering these companies, and they just do things differently. And I do think that their internal operations and their culture are the reason why they keep growing stronger. Uh, usually when we have a big company, they just get clunky and bureaucratic and fall apart, but the opposite is happening with the tech giants. And so I think we have two options. One is we can sort of point fingers and yell about how they're bad. And I think there's certainly a place for that. But I felt there was a real opportunity to tell people what's going on inside so that they could co-opt these systems and put them into place in their own workplaces. And so then we don't have just five companies on one side and everybody else on the rest saying what happened to us. So the idea mm-hmm. was really to just empower folks, you know, to help them understand what's going on, what they're doing well. And so hopefully they'll be able to implement that and be more competitive and you know, in terms of what I would change now that I know, you know, what I know, I would say, you know, very little uh, because I, I think that the world that I thought we were heading to, uh, a world where technology plays a major role in the workplace, is one that we've accelerated to much faster than it was going to happen before the pandemic. Uh, and you sort of see that. I mean, look at the stock market. The stock market certainly thinks that, you know, basically dumping all this value into these tech companies, probably too much. Uh, uh, but like, I think everybody in their own you know, day to day has experienced some level of this. Uh, and uh, I think it's only going to increase. So we have a decision now. Uh, it's do we ignore what's going on inside? Or do we start to try to figure out? Uh, and, and I would definitely be in favor of the latter. What's fascinating, Alex, is that you wrote it from a business perspective, but I'm not sure if you know, I'm sure you know this, but like here in DC, there are people and activists and tastemakers and take take havers like me, who like obsess over the internal culture of these companies because they have such a disproportionate and large impact on our lives. One of the ones that really kind of exploded into view was this whole thing around Coinbase, which is a, you know, for the listeners who don't know, it's a crypto, uh, cryptocurrency trading platform. It's where I, you know, I've used it to buy Bitcoin. They do not pay me just to be clear. Um, and look, it's a great platform. You know, you should sponsor the podcast, but listeners for real though, their first yeah, Bitcoin but- free. 
Or, yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, here's my discount code. I'll put it in the show notes. All that being said, Coinbase had this whole thing where they were like, look, Coinbase is a mission-focused company. We're not going to talk politics. And they even offered like exit packages to some of their employees who didn't feel comfortable with that statement. All of that to be said, which is that Part of that internal culture, at least from you know, outside looking in, seems to be like this rock bed of cultural liberalism, at least in the in the big five that you name there. But then there are alternative approaches. What do you think that we could learn kind of from from the fights um, of those two things and maybe incorporate to anybody who wants to run a successful company? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, the fact that political. So I talk all in the book largely about invention and how these companies are mm-hmm. inventive and how they reinvent. But of course, you know, the tools that they've implemented inside their tech, inside their companies give people the opportunity uh, to voice dissent as well. When you think about Google, their collaborative culture allows ideas to move across divisions uh, at rapid speed. And that's why they've been able to build the Google Assistant, virtual assistant, uh, uh, and make it better than Siri, despite Apple having a five-year head start. It's all due to that internal culture where Maps and Android and Search and YouTube and uh, calendar can all speak with each other and they're not siloed and technology makes that happen. But it also connects employees and employees when they decided that something wasn't right inside Google, uh, decided to band together and protest in a pretty loud way, a pretty unprecedented walkout where 20,000 20, people walked off of campuses worldwide inside Google, Google to protest the way that they've handled accusations of sexual harassment. Uh, and, and I think there's something to be said there that we have uh, companies where employee bases are interlinked with communication technology and they are becoming hive minds in the way they haven't before. But they also feel today that they want to take political stands inside their companies more than ever before. And that could be for a number of reasons. I mean, you know, where people joke about the Mitt Romney, like companies are people too thing, but mm-hmm. companies play a pretty big role in the political system. They can donate unlimited amount of uh, money due to Citizens United and to feel like people want their companies to take you know, political stance that that uh, sort of affirm their values, uh, then I think that a lot of liberal employees saw that the electoral system in 2016 uh, didn't get the job done for them. And people sitting at companies like Google thought maybe they could enact some change that way. Uh, and then, you know, leading up to what was going on with Coinbase, um, the Black Lives Matter protests put a lot of pressure on companies around the world to, uh, you know, stand up and say Black Lives Matter. Uh, And these political debates hash out inside companies, not just inside tech companies, companies all around the world. Uh, Mm. And and so, yeah, so now management is started to be starting to confront a new reality where they say we were initially building products and now we're being asked to be political actors. And how do we do that? And some will reflect their employees viewpoints and others like Coinbase or will say this is holding us back too much. Uh, We don't want it here. And. You know, that's why they banned it. Of course, Coinbase had bigger problems underneath the surface, which sort of indicates, mm. you know, why they made that move. Uh, but you could think, OK, maybe maybe there's some logic to that. Or if people actually put that energy into the actual political, into like the more mainstream political system, the electoral system versus corporations, are they going to get more done? I think there's a discussion to be had there. Uh, but right now, it's something that, you know, managers across probably every industry um, and, and especially in Silicon Valley are confronting and dealing with and trying to figure out how to make that work. Mm-hmm. So before we get deeper into the themes of basically techs 2016 to 2020 and going to 2021, 
Let's talk about what a tech company actually is. We had Reese Wiedemann, who did the book on WeWork on the show a month ago. And we're talking about WeWork, the real estate company. And part of what gets wrapped up into all WeWork's problems, the idea is, is a real estate company, a tech company, is it worth $48 billion because it has the tech multiplier, all that sort of idea. So as you're writing about the tech industry, and as you have been writing about it for the past several years, how do you think of what a tech company is? Um, how broadly does this sort of encompass everything? Yeah, it's a great question, Marshall. Uh, I think that we need to redefine sort of the way that we think of what a tech company is and what's not. Um, and, and the reason is because it's cliche to say, but every company is a tech company now. I mean, we all look at look at us right now. Like, is this a media company or is this a tech company? Right. We're all, you know, using Zoom. We're recording on QuickTime. Like, uh, you guys will put it together in some editing software. You know, you're not going to take this audio and then kind of cut the tape and put it together like you would in the radio. So there's a there's a high dose of technology everywhere. Everything from what we're doing here to the auto industry and even real estate. You know, the real estate industry when they're building buildings now, they fly drones in some cases yeah. through the buildings with like. Uh, machine learning baked in so they can see whether that building is starting to fit uh, the blueprint that they put out. Because typically what happens in a building is they put a beam in the wrong in the wrong place and they build up and they're like, oh, shit, the, the beam is in the wrong place. They have to take the whole building down, build it back up. And it's terrible. So they have to become, you know, quote unquote, technology companies now. So here's what I'm going to suggest we do in terms of our redefinition of the way these company we think about these companies. You have two types of companies. You have companies that use technology and you have platform companies. And platform companies are companies that people can build companies upon, right? So you, you sort of have like infinite scale that you can you can develop on top of those things. So something like AWS is a great example. AWS is a technology company. It provides can the technology. Can you explain AWS just for the it's, people who yeah, are listening? It's Amazon, yeah. Amazon Web Services. It's essentially Amazon's back-end uh, uh, uh computing infrastructure that many, many companies across the web build their services upon. Uh, and so so that's a platform company. You can sort of have infinite growth on top of that. Um, whereas something like a WeWork, you know, understandably not really a tech company. It's a real estate company that uses technology because WeWork doesn't just supply the platform where you can, you know, it's physical buildings uh, and, and there's a natural limit to that. Um, and that's why you see just to not to get too market focused, but mm -hmm. when the stock market thinks that you're a technology company, it will give you a multiple of like 30, which means that you're going to be valued like 30 times uh, over your your uh, your earnings because uh, 30 times your earnings because they just see that, you know, you have you know certain revenue potential, but that can blow up in a minute or a certain profit potential, but that could just, you know, increase exponentially. Whereas if you're not a tech company, you get a multiple, you know, uh, uh, 10 or under. Because there, you can only grow so fast because you don't have this unlimited upside of a tech of a of a platform company. Sorry if that was too wonky. That's no, the way I see it. And to get into it a little deeper for a second, the perfect example of that tech multiplier theme is Tesla versus the established auto companies. So Tesla, everyone knows if you're mm -hmm. opening up your Robinhood app. Man, we're just throwing out all the unpaid for the <laughs> <laughs> references Every here. Every listener no. gets a Tesla. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? And then be sure to um, Slack it or something. Um, but yeah. 
Tesla is an incredibly highly valued company on the stock market because many people see it as a tech company. And you have companies such as GM, the legacy automakers that aren't as preferenced in the stock market. And you also have companies like GE, they're trying to pivot themselves. So how do you think about those sort of, if you're a legacy company, what are they trying to do when they're, when not, when they're in the stock market and they're trying to get these higher valuations? Yeah, I mean, uh, Tesla's value is is totally out of control and completely irrational. Uh, but like, there's so you're so gonna get Tesla, some hate mail from Tesla, bro. I'm good with it. I'm good <laughs> with it. Look, listen. Anyone who believes this market is rational, you want to send me hate mail? Go ahead. It's totally <laughs> irrational. It's due to the the factors that that um, we're we're living in right now, where people have no idea where to put their money, so they're putting it into the stock market. It doesn't make any sense. Maybe we'll catch up to those valuations if our economy starts to grow, but I, I do not see it. And I'm not saying Tesla's not a great company. I'm just saying it's overvalued. But mm-hmm. um, so if Tesla was just making cars, going back to our discussion, if Tesla was just making cars, then it would be valued as an automaker. I think what investors see there is that it can make these batteries, which will power electric cars, making it a platform instead of just a maker of physical goods. There's also like Going back to the whole software, the software technology company thing, like there's one more thing I should add, which is that there's something unbelievable about being able to make something once and sell it infinite amount of times. So you'd also like include, you mentioned Slack and it made me think of it. You could also include like Slack as an example of this, right? Mm-hmm. Slack doesn't make its money on services. It builds the product once and it can sell it to every company across the world, which is why Salesforce bought it for so much money. Yeah, can you explain this in particular? Because this is a very good market phenomena that I think a lot of people don't really understand about tech companies, mm. which is that they accumulate growth over time. And as you said, they can actually they can actually just build a product and then send it an infinite number of times, which if you think about it from a business perspective is like the greatest thing ever. I mean, GM has to build a physical car and then sell that car. They have to make like 50,000 cars to make 50,000 sales. Slack makes one product and they can make 50,000 sales, like make 100,000, a million sales. Mm. And so how does that, how, what business lesson prospect can you realistically learn from software when you're trying to compare it to more physical work? Because one thing I really hate is watching people who are in that space be like, it is what we learned about American business. I'm like, you are not in the same realm as like mom and pop restaurant. Like, shut up. No doubt. Uh, there's something about building something online, uh, that, that does allow you to sort of generate infinite product sales, uh, without Mm -hmm. any additional capital cost. Really? I mean, of course you're paying for security and like the HR for the people in your business, but that's about it. Uh, and so that, that causes fundamental changes in the way that our economy works. An example I use in my book is TurboTax, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, before TurboTax, you would have, uh, accountants go to families across the country and help them do their taxes. Uh, and there was a whole class of accountants that would make a good living doing this. Uh, and it took a lot of people. And then you know, TurboTax is made, and now uh, they have to make it once, and it can work for people across the economy, replacing the labor of the accountants. And all that money goes to into it. So, you know, I, I, I don't know if there's like any like, you know, I, I would rather focus on that than say, you know, <laughs> how do we, I'd rather focus on like how do we deal with this issue that that our yes. society is is encountering versus say and that's why you should always build a turbo tax and not yeah. build, not be an accountant that would be a terrible decision. <laughs> the accounting version of learn to code. Yeah, <laughs> literally. Yeah. <laughs> 
So speaking of the stock market, let's get into the actual news, which is that Airbnb had its massive IPO last week. So firstly, can you sort of explain what an IPO is? But secondly, how is it that Airbnb just had such a massive IPO if we're looking at the pandemic defining everything, travel, staying places that aren't your own? It seems like that should be down, but it's really going up right now. So it seems like there's a deeper story going on there about this vision of the future people have. Yeah, so uh, an IPO is when a company will sell off a chunk of itself to public market investors. So you start, you know, companies that are privately owned, the ownership is distributed among a limited set of, of, uh, of investors, uh, or, or, you know, sometimes in a sole proprietorship, it's just the owner or some of their business partners. And then when a company gets to a big enough size, they can sell in the stock market. So, you know, individual investors can purchase shares and then they can enjoy the fruits of that company's growth as it, as it goes. Um, and so right now we are seeing a, uh, a, an incredible move of investor money into technology companies. And you guys had uh, Scott Galloway on in the yeah, post-corona episode. Yes. He's talking about like if you invested in, in you know these these big five technology companies before the pandemic, you've made like fifty percent on your money, which is sort of like an unheard of return in such right. a short amount of time. Um, but but so so you know the reason that this is happening, I think there's two reasons this is happening. I mean, Scott did such a good job that it would. I don't think I'm going to come close to that. Uh, but I, I think that look, people see that the. Like I said at the top, that the economy is really moving in a direction of technology faster than we expected before, and they want to get involved in this growth. And they also see that, like, you know, they, they, they're starting to realize, like, hey, Airbnb builds one system uh, where people can, you know, lease their houses and rent them, and, uh, and, and they can make unlimited amounts of money from that. That's pretty good, something I want to be invested in. Um, and then there's also just the fact that um, interest rates are so low, and people are trying to find ways to put their money, and they're yeah. just dumping it into the stock market in just sort of completely irrational ways. And uh, I, I think that you put those two forces together and you have the tech giants growing as they are and you have Airbnb uh, exploding on, on, on the stock market as, as it comes out. And I guess one last thing I'll say about Airbnb is I don't think the company was impacted at the same level as you might have imagined as the pandemic hit because the first moment the pandemic hit, everyone was like, oh, crap, well, travel's gone. So, you know, you know, sell Airbnb. And that's mm -hmm. why they had to sell $30 a share in a debt financing round, because they were going to everyone felt they were about to die. But then this weird thing happened was uh, where people were like, well, I don't want to sit in my home all day long. And can <laughs> I find a place to go nearby that's safe? Yes. And Airbnb filled that gap beautifully. And I swear, like, I I've never would have imagined the amount of money that I spent on Airbnb <laughs> spending it in California this year, but it's yeah. been a lifesaver. So uh, so actually, Airbnb uh, hasn't been impacted by the pandemic in the way a lot of people would have expected. And I think that's probably, you know, the reasons around the optimism for the stock. It's a fascinating company to watch, I guess. And this is, I mean, look, this is none of this is original, but at the same time, you're looking at a company like DoorDash just goes public. And to your point, Alex, one of the crazy kind of fiscal things we have going on in our economy right now is we actually have like a record high personal savings rate. Like more Americans have not had this much money in the bank in like years. Mm -hmm. And yet we have an intense and I wouldn't say small because I don't want to minimize it. Probably about a tenth of our population, which is epically suffering. I mean, like truly like unemployment, eviction moratorium, back rent, needs forbearance. And I talk about that all the time. 
but it's leading to these like really strange phenomenon in our markets. Um, a lot of our listeners, I, I, I mean, look, are probably predisposed to the view I of, of I am is like, none of this shit makes any sense. So like you look at the DoorDash IPO and you're like, this company is, tra- what is it, like $60 billion market cap? Like that's insane. Sucker, what's, what yeah. is DoorDash? Because actually a lot oh, of people yeah, don't even use it. By the it. way, like- <laughs> I don't even know what the hell DoorDash is. I've never heard of DoorDash before until it IPO'd. I don't know anyone who uses DoorDash. Apparently a lot of people use it. So first explain that, uh, what the hell it is. And second, just like that general observation. I mean, I'm hearing like 2000 dot com bubble stuff i you know in in some commentary is that apt is it accurate i mean how are you looking at different companies different classes of stocks like as we go forward yeah so doordash is a company that will <laughs> bring you food that you order at a restaurant got it okay. similar to uber eats and yeah. stuff like that mm-hmm. uh it it had a a terrifically successful ipo because the market is drunk it's drunk. I'm noticing There's a theme no, here, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I swear. I, I mean, you know, I didn't come here intending to insult every yeah. technology company that you guys bring up. Yeah. Um, I actually, you know, as a tech reporter, you know, a lot of people say tech reporters hate tech companies. I think there's a lot of really cool things that these tech companies do. It's why I'm interested in reporting on them. I think mm-hmm. their businesses are fascinating. I think the people that run them are are fascinating. I think the way that they do business is fascinating. And I also think many of them are extremely overvalued and Darbdash would definitely be, you know, at the top of the list. And I think, uh, you know, as the as this. Uh, yeah, I mean, one the day that Doordash uh, IPO, just looking at the multiple that they got, I don't remember the exact number, but I tweeted that it would be a great time to short Doordash if the market <laughs> wasn't drunk. And yeah. I really believe that. And yeah. I, I mean. I, I, this is, by the way, now I'm about to discredit all the financial uh, advice that I've given up until this point, but I think it'll be indicative in terms of the way um, that I see things right now, where I I don't have a lot of money to invest as a journalist, you guys would imagine, but I'm still yes. trying to be smart about what I do. And I had everything in total uh, total market index funds before this pandemic, and I took it out. Um, wow. And- so like I'm in like long term, you know, low rate savings right now. Mm-hmm. And I I just don't see how this is sustainable and I'm not going to bet what I have on it. So um, I could be wrong and I could miss out on some serious upside over time. Uh, you know, there's this theory that the market always goes up, but it just seems like it seems absurd right now. And, and mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I can't. I can't explain what's going on outside of saying that the fundamentals are completely off and, and I'm scared by it. So this is where we acknowledge that we've been unfairly teeing you up to just be negative. Yes. Like, let's talk about the positive. Like, what are... I got nothing to of, say. You have nothing? <laughs> <laughs> there's no tech leaders, there are no tech companies, there are no trends. Bitcoin reference, there's got to be yes. something here. <laughs> yeah, Bitcoin's going to 30,000, mark it down. There we go. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. There we go. Yeah, I don't okay. have any Bitcoin either. Um, <laughs> but look, I mean, I mean, what I wrote in the book was uh, was a, a analysis of what they do internally, and, and that's something I believe in. Um, of course, the tech company cultures have their own problems, and it's not. I'm not saying anything is perfect, but uh, the key to always day one was saying that like these companies have been inventive. And they've done these really interesting things with technology inside their workplaces that have allowed them to continually reinvent versus spend time on their flagship products. 
and, and I think it's something the rest of the economy might want to consider mirroring. I got a good yeah. story for you guys if you want to hear it. Yeah, please. Hey, go for it. So in the book, I sort of uh, delineate work into two categories, uh, idea work, anything involved in coming up with a new idea. Wait, Alex, quick pause. Yeah. I just love this laughing. What if we've been like, no, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> we're just wanna, like, no, yeah, actually, yeah. we're just good. <laughs> we're just I respect you guys. So I, I mean, I wouldn't tell. I wouldn't tell. You guys know what you're doing. Uh, so, yeah, but, sorry, um, continue. Go ahead. But, yeah. Yeah, sorry. So, so I would say the tech giants, first of all, I appreciate the opportunity. Um <laughs> The tech giants split up work into like two categories. So they view it as you're either doing idea work, anything that's involved in coming up with a new idea or execution work, uh, anything involved in supporting an, a pre-existing product or your flagship product. I probably should have called it support work, but um, don't want to get into the revisionist history as mm-hmm. to why I chose execution. Uh, but okay, so so most companies spend almost all their time on execution work. They build this flagship product and even if they want to reinvent themselves, they just don't ever have the time to do it uh, because it just takes so much time to support their existing business that like the idea of creating something new is absurd to them. And what the tech giants have done really well is they've used technology to m- minimize execution work and make room for idea work. And here's the story. So Amazon had in its uh, Amazon's, uh, uh, you know, major uh, uh, labor cost was coming from vendor managers inside yeah. its company that were. Uh, basically the people responsible of, you know, to stock their warehouses with products. So a vendor manager would be on the phone with Tide saying, I need this many units of detergent in these fulfillment centers at this time for this price. And it would be this negotiation. You'd feel be a relationship business. And then Amazon basically said at some point in the middle of the last decade, we have, uh, we, they said, you know, we have 20 years of historical retail data and, you know, these humans make mistakes all the time what we could probably do is use that data to allow machine learning to make these decisions and then free up the humans to do something else and so it took a couple of years but now inside amazon's retail organization people do not do these tasks anymore it's largely done by machine learning algorithms which decide what they want so amazon has a pretty good idea of like which zip codes are going to buy north faces before the winner hits and they'll stock their fulfillment centers with those beforehand. So that's mm. how you're able to get your product for, you know, in a day. It's not, it's not only because they're quick with the trucks, it's because they know what you're going to buy before you're going to buy it. Uh, and so they, they use these, these algorithms to, to uh, basically set almost all this stuff on autopilot and, and they freed up their workers to do other things. Uh, and so one of the most interesting stories I came across while writing the book was, they, uh, they, there's a guy, Dilip Kumar, who was working in pricing and promotions inside Amazon. And, you know, he goes to, to work underneath Jeff Bezos as his technical advisor. So, so someone who would shadow him and take all the meetings that Bezos takes. Uh, and by the time he's done, pricing and promotions is on its way to be automated. Uh, and so he says, all right, time to do something new. So he gets together with a bunch of other people from the retail organization and they say, what is the most annoying part of shopping in real life? And how can we solve it with technology? And they initially come up with this idea for a big vending machine. You like punch in your items and a bunch of tubes, you know, <laughs> do all these things and push it out to you. And then they're like, all right, this isn't going to work. And then they end up developing Amazon Go, which is the store where you just scan in, take everything you want off the shelves. And sensors and machine learning uh, uh, tools are, are, are out there figuring out what you've taken. You can walk out, no scanning. And then it will charge you for what you've taken. And this is going to be the future of Amazon's retail organization. So um, 
I just think this is the way that companies are going to work in the future. They're going to find ways to change the nature of work inside their companies uh, and and use that added room uh, in the workplace to, to create new things. And I think the tech giants have done this well. And, and the book is filled with stories of, of mm-hmm. uh, companies that have done stuff along a similar trajectory. And, and, and that's why they're doing so well. What's so fascinating listening to you, Alex, is like, one half of my brain is like, wow, that's amazing. You know, human ingenuity, technology. The other half is like, yeah, but what about all those people? And that's mm-hmm. where I think it starts to intersect with politics to your point about Intuit, TurboTax. And all. By the way, I mm-hmm. use TurboTax. It's awesome. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, but Me like, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, but all that money now I, I know is kicking up to this like basically like financial services conglomerate and they own like basically if you want to run a business and use any sort of accounting software you have to use them and they have a virtual monopoly on this so actually one of the more monopolistic areas we don't really talk about that much but what i'm fascinated by and i'd love to talk more about this is how these companies are starting to butt up against politics so marshall and i we when we were in silicon valley back when you were allowed to travel um and we're having dinner with some you know some pretty prominent people and one of them said something i thought stuck with me ever since he's like you know you could build a unicorn company uh, a billion dollar corporation tech company in silicon valley before 2014 2015 you never had to once think about the u.s government and it seems to be now that that is just not the case like no matter what you are doing you have to think what's washington gonna think that is fundamentally kind of altered the power structure. And of course, I think Uber is kind of like your quintessential example. I mean, to its critics, Uber's main financial innovation was like unbundling the benefits that you get at work and then like putting you in a car and then pairing it up with a really cool, I don't want to diminish what they did, a very cool like algorithm which places you with a car which is near you and all sorts of other interesting stuff. But like at the end of the day, a lot of these drivers are not making are barely making like minimum wage. And now with the failure of whatever that law was in California, Prop 22 in in California, that's just not going to change. And so as we see tech butt up against politics, I think labor is going to be one of the most contentious issues. How do they think about that, Alex? Because they talk a huge game about being pro-worker, um, and I and in my mind, they usually mean pro white collar worker, as in like their own tech workforce, mm-hmm. but not necessarily the non white collar staff. What do you think? Yeah, I think this is one of the major issues we're going to confront over the next hundred years. Mm-hmm. This is a major, major, major deal, and I think that like in the book, uh, you know, that one part is saying this is where we're going, but I definitely hit the second half of that question, which is what does it mean for the rest of us? And uh, I mean, all tech is politics right now, no doubt about it, not only in terms of the way that they interact with the political system in terms of antitrust uh, and laws like Prop 22, but also in terms of the decisions they make with their products. Think about Facebook. Facebook used to say, we don't want to be the arbiter of truth. Think about Twitter. They used to say, we're the free speech wing of the free uh, of the free speech party. And now they're labeling Trump tweets and taking down (laughs) things that uh, go against WHO consensus on the coronavirus. So tech is deeply integrated with the political system. And and I think where we're going to net out uh, on this is that um, some some tech companies are going to pick political sides in a way we haven't seen before. Um, You might have seen that a little bit with the Coinbase thing. Being apolitical has a way of being political. Uh, And, and, um, you know, in terms of the worker, it's going to be a major uh, economic problem. Uh, 
and so so it's not it's not all like we don't really have any data right now that shows that automation today is leading to mass unemployment certainly it right. didn't happen in the amazon case a lot of these people went to you know uh went to more inventive jobs uh but there're going to be places where people get hurt and so i think um i'm not an education policy expert but i went back in the last chapter uh to cornell where i studied labor relations so i'm coming at it from that standpoint and i went and i asked you know all my uh you know all the old professors that i had spoken with back there and some of the newer staff what's going to happen here uh and, and so so they said first we need a new way to lead companies that's the business part of it from policy standpoint um the thing that i was surprised about is they they harped on education and maybe i should have been prepared for that since they are professors but they're on the front lines there uh seeing students come in uh you know being and and uh being prepared uh to memorize and spit back and and they have no tolerance of failure so like when you know we all know this is like a kind of prominent factor in american society right now but when a kid you know gets an a minus the parents call the teacher and yell yeah. and it doesn't prepare a kid to be an abstract thinker or to do anything but the way the, the things that society prescribes to you and that's a major issue so i think that the way that we're going to really get out of this is going to be a rethinking of the education system in a way that promotes abstract thinking in a way that and i don't know how exactly we get there uh, but a way that that encourages students and their families to understand that taking the path off the you know most traveled road uh, is the only way to success right now i mean mm. you have to be able to think outside of sort of the conveyor belt so to speak in order to be able to really be successful today especially as we're you know in a society of of really where where like the spoils go to a small segment of winners and and everybody else seems to get uh screwed we need to find ways to empower more people uh to take chances and take part in in, in and have more people uh share in the spoils uh, versus what we have today yeah i totally agree with that i want to go back to something you said earlier which is the magic word antitrust which gets us into the conversation about facebook the ftc instagram but first i want to reference something you wrote in your newsletter after the election that was really helpful and it was in response to the prop 22 decision not decision but the prop 22 vote which is that can the government effectively regulate tech companies whose products people generally like? So if we're going back to the progressive era, I don't think there was anyone who was standing for, you know, big oil. Like no one was like, no, that's my favorite local <laughs> industrial. I love company. the railroads, Marshall. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew Carnegie's way better than J.B. Morgan, yeah. right? There, was, <laughs> yeah. there wasn't, there weren't, there weren't the like Elon Musk equivalent in the Robert Barron era. And if we're thinking of in the year 2000, end of the 19th, 1990s, no one liked Microsoft, right? There wasn't, that was actually part of the issue. No one would naturally be using Internet yeah. Explorer, but what was at hand was this idea that Microsoft was making it so that you had to use their product. Body, 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 Bob was sort of resolved by the courts, was sort of not resolved by the courts and by just the industry moving forward. But today, as we're talking about everything from Facebook, Instagram, Uber, Lyft, those were your examples. How does regulation work in those areas where people are generally favorable to the products people make? Yeah, it's one of the questions I've been thinking about since the this discussion started. Like, mm -hmm. uh, do people want their elected representatives putting restrictions on Amazon so, you know, potentially competitors have a better shot at beating Amazon, but now your package gets there in four days instead of one? Are you happy with the person that voted for these rules? 
so I think it's going to be a quick, quick question. Yeah. This is me just pushing back on my own premise. Is that yeah. really what the antitrust issue would be? But do you think it's true that antitrust regulation of Amazon could result in that drastic a difference in service that someone would notice? So, for example, I now notice that if I order at 1052, I did this two days mm-hmm. ago at yeah. night, I will literally get my package of pens the next morning, at 8 a.m. Is that something that antitrust could potentially do away with? It's a good question. Um, I think, look, I I think we can take a look at the Google example. Mm -hmm. Uh, Google, they're going for defaults, right? So, so I, I, look, let me back up for a second. The Mm -hmm. antitrust action on these, on these product, on these platforms will inevitably trickle down to their products. So the Department of Justice is going after defaults for Google. So Google pays Apple something like, you know, 14 to 18 billion a year uh, to show up as the default search engine on iOS. So let's say the Department of Justice wins that case and, and, that, and that's no longer allowed to happen. So so what, what will likely result is there'll be a screen where you're going to have to pick the, uh, the search engine you want to use. But let's say they say Google can't be that default anymore because they already have Android and Chrome and all these other defaults. So maybe mm-hmm. you now have to use DuckDuckGo or Bing or you Bing. have to use... <laughs> or, yeah. Shout out to Bing. Shout out to Bing. Uh, or, or you have to use, or potentially Apple starts to develop its own search engine, which we know will be worse than Google's because they're not good mm. at doing these things. And and now you have to use that. Let's talk about Facebook, right? So, uh, you know, let's say they break up Instagram and WhatsApp and Facebook, uh, you know, and let's say you're an advertiser there, right? So you now instead of like using one ad system and placing ads on Facebook and Instagram and optimizing that way, you can only place adds on one uh you know it's sort of a remedy that they might seek uh, and that might lead to a worse experience there for the person so it's possible right but the counter to mm-hmm. that is that okay well you make facebook spin off of instagram and mm-hmm. then by mark zuckerberg's own admission instagram is actually taking users from Facebook. by the way i'm one of them i don't use facebook i use instagram a lot mm-hmm. um and except i know that mark still owns me well if instagram is sold off then mark has to compete for my business across his platform versus instagram i mean that's kind of the classic antitrust argument and this is a really fascinating thing too which is that when we're talking here about facebook and instagram and whatsapp there's like three tiers of concern right one is that they're Mm -hmm. integrating all three like into a single user funnel so that they can build a holistic advertising profile on you two is kind of that they can serve ads across like facebook and instagram and optimize it that way and then three is like the basic anti-competition stuff that I laid out there. Um, I, I don't know. I'm curious for your thoughts there, which is that, because you say it's going to trickle down to the product. I mean, I think that is true, but it could tr- it could be a good thing. Like maybe Facebook and Instagram will be better. Um, one of the things I was fascinated by reading Sarah Fryer's, Freer, Fryer, I don't know, Fryer, Freer, yeah. was Fryer, her book, No Filter, is that the original people who designed Instagram were not all in on like this engagement strategy didn't mm-hmm. they wanted their ads to be a very specific like much more aesthetically pleasing way and i'm reading and i'm like thank god like facebook could have ruined instagram and like if they had because they pushed back and they were like no we have our own like distinct identity they were like we're gonna make less money but this is a very different place so i could actually see it it could be a positive thing i don't know yeah look uh, i i'm not necessarily like the yeah i mean they would definitely argue there's going to be a product degradation i know there'll be changes uh, and mm-hmm. could they be worse? 
I mean, when the government's making these decisions, I think there's a good chance. I don't know exactly what they're going to look like. But it's interesting. Your question's interesting because it assumes that Facebook does have a monopoly in social networking. Yeah. And that it's only competitors, Instagram. And I think there's a good argument to be made that that's not the case. Uh, Mm -hmm. That Facebook has real competition from people like Snapchat and especially TikTok. And that more than anything else will motivate it to make its set of products as best as, you know, the best that they can be uh, versus, um, you know, a crappier version of both just so that like, you know, (laughs) they have this, you know, they can solve some internal war. Um, Can you correct me if I'm wrong, though? As I understand it from the FTC's perspective, TikTok and Snapchat aren't social networks the way that Facebook is a social network. So I agree. And we're just talking about does Facebook have competition? I definitely think there's a there's a attention competition thing. So for example, once again, I spend way more time on Instagram than I spend on the native Facebook app. Um, people definitely spend more time on TikTok than they spend on Instagram. That's why the Instagram has rolled out the terrible Reels product. We've been sh- we've been shilling mm-hmm. things. It's key to say when something's bad, Reels is terrible. So how do we think of that competition within something as amorphous as a social network? Yeah, I mean, I view social networks, uh, maybe unlike some others, as zero sum games for people' time, people's time. Mm. So I well, think that's how that, they like, view it too. To be clear, right? Like they view it yeah, the same way, right? Yeah. I, I I think there's real truth to that. Um, yeah. I mean, honestly, like you know, I, I so I'm I use TikTok. I'll use Instagram. I'm a, a minute I spend on TikTok is a minute I won't spend on Instagram, and. Um, and this is sort of what I talk about reinvention in, in the book. This is why the company has to reinvent is because social media users especially are the most fickle of any users. As soon as you make like a product change that people don't like, they're gone. In fact, Facebook is bleeding teenage users in the U.S. right now. So, um, so yeah, I do think it's, it's zero sum. Ultimately, yeah, okay, does Facebook have a network? So does it have a, does it have a directory? Yes. Does TikTok have a directory? No. Is the, does, does something on Instagram and Reels compete directly with each other? Yes, they do. So, so I, I don't know. I mean, it, it seems to me that if they, and I, I'm not trying to make their defense for them. I'm just trying to think mm-hmm. this through with you guys. But, totally. but it does seem to me that uh, if they made their products suck, then you know people would stop using them. And another great example of this is them, you know, cribbing Snapchat stories off of Snapchat. You know, if Snapchat Snapchat isn't a social network then why was Facebook thinking it was like an existential crisis? Uh, And that was because um, actually original sharing on Facebook was going down. People were sharing less on Facebook. The product was getting worse. People were spending more time on Snapchat and they had to make drastic changes. And some might say unethical changes, you know, by copying stories and thinking about Mm. not only did Facebook copy stories after the Snapchat experience, but they actually reoriented their entire product from a broadcast product to one that started to emphasize uh, uh, intimate messaging. That's why you saw them say they said this thing that they were pivoting to privacy. That was bullshit. They were never pivoting to privacy. They were pivoting to <laughs> private messaging uh, yes. because they saw people didn't want to post something that goes to everyone. They would much rather share with a group of people on Messenger or a smaller group uh, on the newsfeed. So uh, this yeah. is social networking. I'll say social networking especially is is a vicious space to compete. And Facebook doesn't have an operating system. Think about the other four big tech companies. Google has an operating system, Android. Apple has a couple of them. Microsoft has Windows. Amazon, well, they have, uh, I don't want to say the A word, but they have that voice computing system that a yeah. lot of people are using inside the Echo. I would set it off if I said it. So, <laughs> um, so, uh, so, so, and fa- what does Facebook have? 
you can only use Facebook by log by by opening up a Apple device or or Google device, no Facebook device. So it's kind of a precarious position for them to be in. I remember the, for a while they were yeah. thinking about a Facebook phone, and I was like, "What a yeah, fucking disaster!" They made it. It was a disaster. And by the <laughs> Wait, way, that's it came why out? I didn't. Even, I thought it was. I didn't know it was real. You it missed was, 2014, uh, dude. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It was retrofitted Android, um, and that and that's why they're doing Oculus. By the way, so yeah. they they think that this might be a place they could finally uh, have an operating system. And actually, as I'm speaking with Mark Zuckerberg, he mm. he pulls out his Android phone, and he was talking about how the the uh, the way that you operate a phone is exactly the opposite of the way that he would want to operate a phone where he says in real life you pick a person to hang out with and then you decide what to do on a phone you pick what to do and then you decide who you want to contact or who you want to do it with mm. uh, and he wants to create an operating system where where that's uh, the opposite is that going to work i don't know i, I want to say that I'm, I'm building up to to say this which is that given the antitrust situation that we have going on with facebook especially and potentially google also i think it's going to be time not the government that's going to end up ending these monopolies. Uh, that yeah. this, this space is, is too competitive. And we have a couple of years down the road where these cases are going to hit. And then we have a couple of years uh, where they figure out the remedies at trial. So I think by the time we hit them, I mean, look what happened to Microsoft. Uh, you know, you, right. they would have just given it a couple of years and the company would have been upended by the mobile transformation. And so I think the same thing is going to happen to these guys. Here's a question mm-hmm. about that too, because so obviously the mic for background, the Microsoft case basically doesn't end up getting resolved. They move forward. But an argument that antitrust advocates make is that even the the legal proceedings themselves, however, hobbled, you know, Death Star, Titanic, Microsoft to the point that alternatives actually Sagar, someone who we just had on was talking about this. I can't remember who. Um, but basically but someone has said, hey, like they would have loved to purchase Google. They would have loved to do X, That's Y, and Z thing of Yahoo. But because there was all of the antitrust scrutiny on them, they sort of did the and I'm an Xbox user, so I'm not trying to be mean here, but Xbox, the first series was sort of like a also ran compared to the PlayStation 2. And the Zune was an obvious disaster when it came <laughs> to the iPod. We're really doing the throwbacks here. So do, yeah. what do you think about the argument that even if we don't wake up in 2027 with a broken up Facebook, the the um, oxygen that is going to be given to the space is going to be such that a thousand flowers will bloom? Let me add. Let me add an addendum to that, which is that does Mark Zuckerberg buy the next Instagram today? I just don't think so. Right? He can't. And so because of no this, no way. Yeah. yeah, he can't do that. Right. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that. By the way, uh, Marshall, I'm glad that you're you're joining me in this uh, moment where we start to knock all the different tech companies and Sagar. If you have any that you don't like, <laughs> I, I often welcome. I'm too you busy to... shilling for endorsements. <laughs> yeah. huh? Someone has I, to pay I, the I, bills. I, I kind of yeah. see how this works now. Works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so so yeah, I, I do think that that they would have been uh, that time would have been unkind to these companies anyway, and I think the antitrust stuff is going to potentially hasten that but there's one thing there's one little wrinkle here which i think is worth considering which is does this antitrust action make room for smaller competitors or does it create wins for the other tech giants and i think there's Mm. a strong case to be made that it will create wins for the other tech giants take the google example for instance we talked about them being the default search on apple and that being a main thing the doj is going after so let's say they prohibit that and apple creates its own search you've just given the most rich company in the world, an opportunity to get into the extremely lucrative area of search engine, uh, of mm-hmm. being a search engine, and that being on their devices. So they'd have to sort of tell Google not to do it and also tell Apple not to do it in order to be able to create real change when we're talking about antitrust. They might end up 
you know, creating monopolies. And I know that, um, you know, on this show, you guys like to talk about governance and sort of the impact of our policies. And, you know, that's something that really needs to be thought through is, is the result of this going to end up being, you know, a couple of even more powerful companies than the one we have now? It's an interesting point. I had never even thought about it. I already know our uh, our most extreme uh, friends would say they'd be like, "Well, break them all up." What do you mean? <laughs> and I'm like, "Well, you know, it's complicated." Like, yeah. Google and Facebook, like you said, it's going to take like a decade in court to even figure this shit out. By that time, maybe Facebook is even dead. One interesting thing I want to get with you, because um, you talked to we're talking about TikTok, and we're talking about Facebook. Yeah, uh, there's been a lot of talk here in Washington. Zuckerberg. I can't remember when his speech was. I think it was right before the pandemic. He basically came to DC and he was the like, Georgetown Look. one, the Georgetown speech. So he was like, "I am like the U.S. answer to Facebook." He was he's basically trying to cast himself in like nationalist language. And look, like I think that's great. Uh, I don't think it's sincere, really, in any way, and that's fine. Um, you know, like <laughs> people are adopting ideas that I want them to, and if whether it's insincere or not, if that helps them, I think that's not a bad thing. But I've noticed a lot of derision against him within Silicon Valley kind of for adapt for adopting this kind of like nationalist rhetoric versus TikTok. I don't think it's any secret that they would like to see TikTok banned um, from a competition standpoint. But like, look, I would like to see it banned, too, from a national security standpoint. What are your thoughts there? Like, do you ever think we're going to have another like widespread use app? That is at, like literally made and run in China, like TikTok. I feel like it might be the very last one. Marshall, you have something to say? Go ahead. Yeah, and just one quick thing. Um, quick little misstatement. The point of his speech was that U.S. tech giants themselves yes, are right. the bulwark against Chinese tech companies. So you're saying. So what he was argument was is if you're concerned about Alibaba, if you're concerned about all of this, you know, the CCP work with me, don't break me up. The Chinese don't break up their power. So that's just a quick thing. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, no, I'm glad we're talking about China because that I think is like a pretty good uh, uh, next thing to discuss in terms of like what the impact of this antitrust could be. You know, if mm. you weaken the U.S. companies, do you make room for another Chinese company to come in? Uh, and I also think it's possible. The Zuckerberg speech was interesting because he did sort of, uh, you know, make this delineation between American tech companies and Chinese tech companies. And we were already living in a world where we sort of had a bifurcated internet where like American companies were banned in China. Uh, and, you know, we had taken right. some action against a Chinese company. But I think that the past couple of, well, the past couple of years have definitely added some gasoline on that. And it does seem like there's really two visions of the internet emerging. Uh, and we could end up in a place where like some countries decide they want the Chinese social media and some countries decide they want American social media. And then just to go to your last point, the the question about, you know, can we see another company like TikTok start to get popular in the U.S.? I mean, I think you have to say absolutely. You know, there was a moment not long ago where yeah. uh, where we didn't think there was going to be another, you know, challenger to Facebook in the social media world. And TikTok has absolutely blown up. I mean, it's amazing that 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 app, uh, once you start using it, is almost impossible to put down. I've and heard I, that. I, I don't I use mean, it. Neither of yeah. us use that. Uh, yeah. I, I used yeah. it in the browser of my phone once. Um, People yeah. send me TikToks, mostly I get, to troll yeah. me. And I yeah. get the concern. Um, yeah. And of course, like, you know, given my job, it's like something I need to do. Um, mm -hmm. And I've actually really only picked up on it recently. And just watching that algorithm work 
is pretty unbelievable. And we know that China has uh, some serious AI research. We know they have a work culture uh, that enables them to put stuff out faster than we do here in the U.S. Hmm. Um, not saying it's something that we want to praise. It seems like a pretty te- you know devastating work culture <laughs> to right. be a part of where they just only work. There's no work-life balance. There's work. Yeah. Uh, There's actually but, a new chart out. I was just seeing mm-hmm. this on Twitter, which is like the amount of time people spend working in China is like by a mile of every yeah. other country. Oh, it's absurd. And the question yeah. is, are you going to work better? I would say it's not necessarily yeah. the case. You're just, you know, showing up. We know that toxic work cultures is just people sh- showing up at the office because they have to mm-hmm. uh, versus actually doing something. But yeah, I, I, I would not rule out the possibility of more consumer apps from China coming into the U.S. and, and getting real traction. Wow. I'm just, I'm genuinely, I'm generally pretty skeptical about that just because it seems as if TikTok came in at the perfect moment where attention wasn't focused on it. But if we're sort of talking about a theme here, like one first part of the show's theme is about the market, frothiness, all those sort of things. But we're also looking at it's a finding team is going to be like a brewing and maybe it's not even a cold war, but it's a brewing conflict between the U S and China. It's just simply not going to be as easy to look and see TikTok as harmless or see the sort of future there as harmless. But I want to get to our last section. I'm um, speaking of your actual job and everything, mm-hmm. you know, you, you know, you were at Buzzfeed, you now are on Substack, and you have a podcast. So you're hitting the sort of new media space that we're into. What are your thoughts genuine generally on the future of independent media and whether or not are you going to end up back at a major media company in five to six years because <laughs> everyone gets tired of subscribing to many sub stacks. <laughs> yeah, I, look, I think the future of independent media is bright. Uh, it's the reason why I decided to start my own sub stack called Big Technology. Uh, I, I, um, I didn't I did it because, uh, you know, I, I, my, my book came out in April and I saw a lot of opportunity. Uh, I had was already writing a newsletter at BuzzFeed called The Tech Giant Update, and I was able to bring my subscribers over. And I saw a lot of opportunity to do uh, what I kind of viewed as newsletter plus. Like mm-hmm. I wanted to do a newsletter and other stuff, uh, free, freelance for you know some places. Uh, I dreamed like a stretch goal for me was eventually becoming a contributor at CNBC, and that happened like a month after. Congrats. Uh, Congrats. Thank you. So that was, uh, that was super exciting for me. Um, and uh, and I said, once I start the newsletter, you know, I don't necessarily need to make money from paid subscribers. Uh, I could, you know, syndicate it and I'm syndicating it for a fee on Mediums One Zero, who's been an amazing partner for me. And then, you know, I'm not, you know, I grew up, no, I didn't grow up. I, I started my career buying advertising and selling ad tech before I moved into journalism. Mm-hmm. And I'm not opposed to advertising. And I think this week looks like I'm about to close the first ad deal for the newsletter. I have so, to ask about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because Substack, this is getting like nitty gritty media yeah. nerd stuff, but Substack yeah. is not friendly at a company level to advertising. I think that advertising, the literal rhetoric they use is advertising makes these products worse. It incentivizes yeah. clickbait. What do you think about that debate oh, you, as you, you try yeah. to use it? Yeah. You would understand why they would say that because they make their money only on subscriptions. On but sales, I, on yeah. the other hand, am trying to support an independent media business. <laughs> and I think that's ridiculous. And if you uh-huh. look through the history of, of media companies, they've embraced advertising. Uh, so why shouldn't I? And so mm. I'm, I'm doing it. And, you know, I think the people at Substack are great uh, and they've built a good platform. Um, but ultimately, if they decide to kick me off because I'm going to run ads, 
And that's their decision. I end. I can end up like the newsletter isn't theirs. I mean, the subscriber list right. isn't theirs. The subscriber subs, list right. is mine. The the post. The, one of the cool things about doing this is for the first time in my life, the posts are mine. You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. the, the stuff that I write doesn't belong to another media company, uh, which is cool. So I can bring those over uh, eventually. Uh, but I'm yeah, at the end of the this. day. Sorry, go ahead. No, this is really interesting. And look, I know this can be wonky to a lot of people, but the dynamics through which independent media works, um, how it funds itself, how it's going to evolve really is going to affect, in my opinion, how all of us are getting our content. So I take, mm-hmm. take, listen to this, because what I'm taking away from this is that people have gone all in on subscription and people have predicted like subscription fatigue for a long time. But let's be honest, it's just not true. Uh, I can't remember where I'm getting this from. So whoever I'm plagiarizing, sorry. Um, The reason that it probably has not arrived is that because there's enough people who are leaving legacy products and joining subscription rather than people who already subscribe to stuff topping out. As in, there's still a pretty big market. But I still think that edge is coming. So your decision to not run subscription and to get advertising I wouldn't say it's like revanchist, like you're going back to anything, but you're trying to pioneer mm. a new model. When you talk to other people in your space, because there's a lot of tech reporters, and I think that probably is the one that makes the most amount of sense. You guys are delivering like content to like high value audience, people who are willing to pay a lot for business news, like that type of thing. Kind of the traditional trade publication, how it's always made money. Not that that's what you do, but just that's kind mm-hmm. of a, a framework through which people might be able to understand it. What are some other ways that you're trying to diversify in the future that other people might be able to follow? Because I want this space to blow up. I think being just based on subs is completely wrong, Um, that there's Mm got to be like 12 different ways in order to make this work. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I think I definitely am showing a different way to do it. Um, And, you know, so so here's what I think the the revenue mix looks like for me uh, down the road. So um, and and I feel like almost all this stuff is is going so. Advertising is a chunk. Um, then, in terms of subscription, I will turn on like a membership model where, mm. for let's say five dollars a month, uh, folks can join in on live recordings of the Big Technology Podcast and ask questions. Uh, mm. Then syndication. I feel like syndication revenue is uh, something that will be there, uh, and and I hope it continues with One Zero. Uh, it's been, like I said, just a, fast, a fantastic partnership, and I love the people there podcast. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm starting to run the podcast. Uh, it's not as big as your guys, uh, <laughs> but, but it's, um, your it's, sub stack is bigger than our sub stack though. So true. we right. all have revenues. Yeah, we yeah, well, we welcome, by the way, we a, official welcome to the sub stack yeah. game because you guys just <laughs> launched and I want to say it's That's great right. to have you on the platform. <laughs> um, but yeah, podcast revenue can eventually, and the ad deal that I'm running is going to be across, uh, the newsletter and the podcast. So oh, that's awesome. You know, yeah. it'll be one unit on the newsletter, one unit on the podcast. Um, so, and it will go to exclusive, like one headline sponsor. Um, so, mm-hmm. and then, you know, for me, like, am I going to freelance here and there? Uh, definitely. Like I'm working on a freelance story now. Uh, and then of course, like, you know, working with CNBC is another part of it um, that I've just yeah. been lucky and, uh, and feel grateful to be a part of. So it seems like it's a pretty diversified pool where if like, one part of it goes away for a month or two or, you know, even permanently, the thing can continue. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's it's been super fun actually trying to figure out, you know, of course, as a reporter working in, you know, under working for media companies for like maybe eight years uh, before doing this. Um, it's been interesting to go out and start start my own business and see how it can work. 
Um, and then, uh, and uh, yeah, and I think that there there could be some real staying power. Now, I think uh, Marshall, you asked like whether or not I'm going to uh, end up at another media company in five to six years. I, it could happen. Um, you know, I kind of think that you have to go about this stuff with an open mind. This is definitely an experiment for me. Uh, I didn't, uh, you know, leave BuzzFeed with a fiery screw BuzzFeed uh, manifesto. <laughs> I had a great time there. I just kind of wanted to do this thing on my own for a while. And, uh, and you know, I believe in what, what the press is doing. And if at a certain point I think I can, uh, you know, I can learn from people inside a publication and, and feel like it would be a better opportunity for me, then, then I'd definitely consider it. But right now... Um, I, I love the Substack thing. Uh, it's been it's been a true true blast. Uh, I feel like I'm able to put the right amount of attention to the stories that I'm working on. I get to assign myself the stories that I want to work on, uh, you know, which is great. And I and I think it has some real staying power. Yeah, I, I appreciate awesome, how non ideological you are about all those frameworks because a lot of people they're either like I said advertising is bad because advertising means clicks Some people have hangovers from writing, you know, <laughs> 30 pieces in mm -hmm. one day at business insider back in 2015. And I totally get that, but I like how you're just approaching this from the, from a very pragmatic perspective. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. The key is just to sustain it. And, uh, I mean, it's going to be one story, one story a week, one way or the other, whether there's an advertiser or not, but it's a locked in mm -hmm. audience and a good open rate. Uh, so, so I think it's worth trying. Yeah. Well, look, man, uh, all the best and let people know where they can subscribe, check you out, all of that. Yeah. So uh, my podcast, if you like podcasts, it's Big Technology Podcast. Do a conversation with a tech insider or outside agitator once a week. Uh, newsletter is called Big Technology on Substack. Uh, the book is always day one, available at all major booksellers. All right. We'll put all that in the show notes. Alex, yeah. really appreciate you joining us, man. Thank you very much. Guys, it's, it's been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, as a listener, you. this has really been a thrill for me. So uh, hopefully we can do it again. I'm trying to get to the Stoller number, right? I think he's at three <laughs> shows now. So yeah, uh, I got my right. fingers crossed. Right. <laughs> Friend of the yeah, pod. Yeah, definitely. Friend of the pod. All right, Thanks, man. Alex. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the episode, guys. We really appreciate it. Uh, just as a reminder, check out our new Substack, therealignment.substack.com. We've got 2020 book lists on there. We're going to have weekly wraps every Friday, transcripts, all extra little goodies, and places where you guys can comment. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can help us out there. It helps other people find the show. You can ask us a question, uh, either in the review itself, or take a screenshot of your five-star review, send it into realignmentpod at gmail.com. As always, a special thank you to the Lincoln Network for sponsoring the work that we do here on the podcast. Really appreciate them, and we will see you all on Thursday. Thursday.